This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. When police arrived at the Mount Pleasant house early on December 10th, 1965, the first thing they saw was a bright red Santa Claus painted on the front window. When they kicked in the front door, the horrified officers found the bloodied bodies of Osborne Kosberg, 39, his wife Dorothy, 40, and two boys and a girl. Another girl was barely alive and a baby was crying in his crib. I'm Eve Lazarus and this is episode 11 of Cold Case Canada, The Kosberg Murders. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. At 17, Tom was the oldest of the Kosberg's six children. On the day of the murders, he'd purchased a bottle of 25 sleeping pills from a local drugstore in East Vancouver's Mount Pleasant area. He made chocolate milkshakes for his mother, for Florence Stonehouse, a family friend and former neighbour who was visiting, and for his two brothers and two sisters. The family was watching television. Florence sat at one end of the Chesterfield, while Thomas sat at the other, reading a paperback. Florence later told a Vancouver Sun reporter that she'd taken over chocolate syrup and Tommy, as she called him, made the milkshakes on a machine that the family had bought for Christmas. She said the Kosbergs were a close and happy family, and Tommy, a grade 10 student at Sir Charles Tupper High School, brought home ashtrays as gifts for his mum and dad just the night before the murders. Florence says she remembers her friend Dorothy saying, I didn't know that I was that tired. Florence then fell asleep and was woken up by the crying baby around 11pm. Tom suggested that she stay the night, but she called a taxi and left. While the rest of the family slept, Tom waited up for his dad, a Boy Scout leader and truck driver for Allied Heat and Fuel. He made Osborne a milkshake when he got home. When everyone was asleep, Tom went to the basement to fetch the axe. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. Sometime after 1am and before 7 the next morning, Tom hacked up the family with a double-bladed axe, which is an unsettling exhibit in a true crime display at the Vancouver Police Museum and Archives. Tom had a history of mental illness that dated back to January 1961, almost five years before the murders. In early 1963, after running away from home several times, he was sent to live at Central City Mission, a home for troubled youth in Burnaby, BC. His family doctor referred him to Dr Bennett Wong, a West Vancouver-based psychiatrist. Robert Estegard was the house parent at the mission home. He soon found that Tom had a problem with discipline and would run away when he had any kind of loss of control. In January 1964, 
Tom was admitted to Crease Clinic, which became part of Riverview Hospital for the Mentally Ill. Tom was discharged from the clinic five months later and his condition was given as improved. Tom went to live back at home with his parents and siblings. He stopped seeing Dr Wong and he attended group therapy classes at Riverview. He'd got on well with Robert Estegard and often went back to visit him at the mission. Dr Wong later told a reporter, This whole thing points up to me the great lack of coordination in our mental health program. After hacking to death his mother and father, two brothers and a sister, and critically injuring another sister, Tom changed his clothes and drove off in the family's 1954 sedan. He crashed the car into a power pole a few blocks away from his house, walked back to the house and phoned Robert Estegard for help. A worried Estegard drove to the Kosberg's house and found Tom waiting for him outside on the front porch. Tom told him, I've done something awful, and said that he wanted to see his former psychiatrist, Dr Bennett Wong. Tossing up whether to call the police or take Tom to the psychiatrist, Estacard decided to drive Tom to Wong's West Vancouver home. On the way, the boy told him, I guess you know they're all dead. And a little later, he said that his brothers and sisters would have no further worries now. After questioning Tom, Dr Wong called police at 7.45 that morning. Tom was held at West Vancouver Police Headquarters until two Vancouver police detectives arrived to pick him up. Police described him as neatly dressed and calm. Tom had called Dr Wong's and tried to make an appointment to see him. Wong said that he'd made an appointment for him two days before the murders, but Tom didn't show up. Wong said later that he found out that Tom had never got the message. Now, I assume that Tom told him this, that he didn't get the message. But perhaps as a psychiatrist treating the teen for impulse control, he should have made more of an effort to follow up. At least he could have checked on Tom's mental health to see that he was okay when he skipped an appointment that he'd asked for, the first one in several months. The bodies of Osborne Kosberg and his wife Dorothy were found in their bedroom. Two-year-old Vincent was found on the floor next to their bed. He died from deep wounds to his face and skull. The baby was in the crib in the same room. It was reported but never proven that Tom had attempted to smother six-month-old baby Aussie. Barry, a freckle-faced, red-haired 15-year-old, died in his bedroom at the back of the house. Gail, also a redhead, and at only 11, was already a trusted babysitter in the working-class neighbourhood. Gail was found dead in the bedroom she shared with her sister. Marianne, aged 13, was rushed to hospital and underwent emergency surgery for massive head wounds. She died in hospital nine days later from a depressed skull fracture. One veteran police officer, Superintendent James Mundy, told reporters that it was the worst crime scene he'd attended in his long career with the Vancouver Police Department. Baby Ozzy was sent to live with his grandmother, Anna Kosberg, who lived nearby. Dorothy's brother Arthur Riggs signed the death certificates. 150 family and friends gathered at a funeral for the Kosbergs. The family is buried at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Burnaby. 
Tom was found fit to stand trial. He didn't contest any of the events of the murders, and in February 1967, he pled not guilty to six counts of capital murder, a sentence that still came with the death penalty. A psychiatrist told the court that Tom was a schizophrenic, quite capable of carrying out a complex and deliberate plan, but that his brain was not capable of distinguishing whether what he was doing was right or wrong. Another psychiatrist testified that Tom's mental illness had been building up and reached an uncontrollable state on the night of the multiple slaying. The court ruled that Tom was not guilty by reason of insanity and shipped him back to Riverview, where he would remain unless released by cabinet order. Or in other words, he was remanded to Riverview Institute for an indeterminate sentence. The definition of competency in 1965 was that a person who isn't competent to stand trial can't be convicted of a crime. Defendants have an unassailable right to understand proceedings against them and assist in their own defence. It ensures that the proceedings are fair. Vancouver criminologist Professor Heidi Curry has spent a lot of time researching the legal and mental health issues surrounding the Kosberg murders and Tom's subsequent trial. She tells me it's one of the most unusual cases that she's seen in her career. One of the things that concerned her was the speed in which Tom was found not guilty by reason of insanity and that the reasons or his motive for the murders of six family members were never disclosed. So what bothers you the most about this case? What bothers me is that there are so many interesting points in the progression of the case where there's a vacuum of evidence that we can't see because we can't see the medical records. And when I look at the timeline of the case, which I can because I have the Supreme Court record, Everything moves along remarkably quickly. And it appears to me that it is this classic open and shut case where there is, there's absolutely no possibility that he could be found guilty. And there's no intent to test that in any rigorous examination of the evidence at that trial. So this is indicative to me that it was... 100%. He's going to trial, he's going to be found fit to stand trial, and he's going to be NGRI, not guilty by reason of insanity. And there's absolutely no doubt he is not going to be convicted of six counts of, of murder, which would bring Kidding. him the required, the statutory sentence, which is death. Is this anything to do with a 17-year-old getting the death penalty and the jury perhaps letting him off? Yeah, nobody wants to execute a young person. It's distasteful. It's always been in Canada, you know, we just don't really have the stomach for it. And executing a young man when there is evidence of psychiatric history, and there is, would be incredibly distasteful. Ten years after being found not guilty by reason of insanity, Tom, now 27, was released from Riverview. In September 1977, Dr John Duffy 
director of the Forensic Psychiatric Commission, said in a statement that Tom was a sober, sensible fellow who furthered his education while he was in custody. This is a quote from Dr Duffy. He's had umpteen opportunities to cut out and he's never done it once. I haven't any doubt at all that he will be a model citizen and that's the last we'll ever hear of him. Dr Duffy lashed out at the media for their reporting of Tom's release. He said, All that past is behind him, but then someone begins this mudslinging of axe killer. You don't call a drunken driver who kills someone a Chevrolet killer or a Pontiac killer. It's really upsetting. It upsets all those who work with these people. Dr Duffy said that children who kill their parents do so almost always because of some problem in their family history and never again commit any such deed. Something incredible may happen in a family that may result in a killing. It's totally different from people who kill strangers. Dr Duffy seems to be hinting that something terrible had happened to Tom to make him commit these murders. Reading between the lines, I wonder if Thomas had been sexually abused. But nothing was ever given for the reason behind the attacks or the event that happened in the family that Dr Duffy alluded to in his statement. Could he have been delusional? Oh, yeah. So hearing voices. Oh, yeah, he very well could have been delusional. He had a psychiatric history, and that does go in his favor in terms of the finding of NGRI. However, there's so many kind of odd bumps in the case that caused me to really wonder about the veracity of that diagnosis. One, One of the things that bothers me in review is that he plans a mass killing. He plans it. He's going to drug them and then he's going to kill them over the evening. So if you accept that evidence that he acquired 25 sleeping pills and that he planned to mix those sleeping pills into the milkshakes with the milkshake machine that had been a gift at Christmas, that's definitely some thinking. And it's clear thinking. He's thinking, I'm going to drug my family and then I'm going to kill them. With the axe that's in the basement, the selection of the weapon is also remarkably disturbing. It's a double-bladed long axe. The force that comes with a strike with a weapon like that is so significant would absolutely lacerate the face, the brain. It would go through the skull into the brain. It would smash the heads of anybody on the receiving end of that. And he's not a small man. He's a teenager. Mm. So it's disturbing to a certain extent that he plans it. He has thought it through. And, you know, in the criminal code, when we're defining first-degree murder, we use the concept of laying in wait. Right? When you plan a murder and you are going to wait for that moment to kill specific people, that's first degree murder. So that's not just impulsive. That's not suddenly out of a delusional state grabbing a knife, which is quite common Mm -hmm. in terms of how Canadians engage in these types of of crimes. Knives are commonly used and some very often they're just kitchen knives. That would be sort of what I would expect from somebody who would be delusional 
or receiving messages or hallucinating. But this one is different. This is different. If he is suffering from delusions of a schizophrenic type, that would have been evident to anybody in that house that night. They would have known he was suffering from delusions. It just doesn't work like that, schizophrenia. You know, you don't go through sort of like this normal interaction, let's have milkshakes and can you stay the night, to a delusional murder spree. It doesn't work like that. What medical reason could account for this then? If it's, it wasn't schizophrenia and it wasn't some weird delusion, how could he do this? How could he murder his family, mm-hmm. be totally aware that he was doing it? Well, homicidal ideation, homicidal impulse does exist. It can be this irresistible urge to kill. My thinking is that the answer to this lies in the psychiatric interviews. Is he acting on an impulse, an irresistible impulse, that is perhaps more tied to an obsessive compulsive type of thinking rather than a psychotic state, one that is is presenting in a way that the person does not really realize that they are uh, actually killing mom. Uh, They might think that they're acting to save the universe, right? But you think Um, he knew he was killing mom? I absolutely believe he does know he's killing his family. So how do you turn the tap off? How is he suddenly cured in eight years? Yeah, and even a better question, how is he so organized? Because we know that schizophrenia presents with a good deal of disorganization. How is he so organized that same night and early morning that he's going to drive a car and let his psychiatrist know that he did something awful? How is that? Let alone be in hospital and have no cognitive decline evident as a result of a major mental disorder. The period that he's hospitalized, we don't have the world's best medications yet. We have medication, but they're not premium. How does he go from uh, NGRI and thrive in hospital, become educated, make friends, earn the trust and support of the medical team, which is just super uncommon at this period. He is intact. The only answer for that is that he was never schizophrenic. So Thomas gets out, he works for the next 30 years, he gets married, he's got a family, lives you know, a fairly normal life, never talks about it, which isn't surprising. Is it just dumb luck that nothing happened or were they right? Well, they were clearly right that he was not a significant threat mm. and that he could live in the community. I looked at the processes by which he was released. It was absolutely lawful. The conditions for Tom's release that he would be subject to supervision by the executive director of the Forensic Psychiatric Institute. That would be Dr Duffy. Tom had to live in BC at an approved place and report once a week to authorities. He could be ordered back to Riverview at the discretion of the board at any time. He was also not allowed to be in possession of a firearm. Nothing was said about him owning an axe. After Tom was released from Riverview, he got a job as a biomedical engineer at BC Children's Hospital. He worked there for the next 30 years. Tom married Maggie, who had five children from a previous relationship. His stepchildren only discovered Tom's story after he died 
in 2016. My blog post about the Kosberg murders is one of the most visited of all my stories on Every Place Has a Story. It's also elicited dozens of comments, some of the most interesting from Maggie's family and people who knew Tom but wanted to stay anonymous. I'm going to read you a few of them. Donna says, I went to elementary school with Tommy, General Wolfe. I also came from a large family and lived on East 26th until 1962. I remember his family, can still picture his mum walking on Main Street with a young child in tow. As did my mum, there were nine kids in my family. I remember many instances of Tommy getting in trouble at school. He was very disruptive. Back then, the solution was a strap, and I remember him being put in the cloak closet at school after he got the strap. It happened numerous times. School officials did not have the skills back then to deal with troubled children. Corrine is a former neighbour and friend of Marianne's. She wrote, I have a lot of memories of Marianne and her family, some good and some bad. Thomas was rarely at the house. His mother was afraid of him, so most of the time he lived at a hospital. His visits home were when his father was home. His father was a big, strong man who could handle Thomas. Everyone was happy for the family because Thomas seemed to be getting better. There was talk of him being able to move home on a permanent basis. Izzy wrote, I worked at the Douglas College Library on the old Riverview grounds in the 1970s. Tom was there on a work release program from Colony Farm. He was soon to be released. Certainly, he seemed a very nice young man, and everyone felt comfortable around him. Actually, there were much more disturbing patients from the hospital going in and out of the library than Tom. When I hear about young teen murderers in estates being tried as adults, I think of him. People under 18 who commit murder have no greater risk than anyone else of committing another murder. Another person who wished to remain anonymous wrote to me, I met Tom in his last few years at Riverview. He was an amazingly intelligent man with a good heart but a tortured soul. We were close friends for the next few years after his release. I owe my prowess at Scrabble to Tom Kosberg. He was the best. I'm glad he found true happiness with Maggie. Tom will be remembered always as a kind, loving, intelligent and giving person. I hope he does rest in peace. He deserves it. I received this email from a woman who was married to Maggie's son and knew Tom and Maggie well. She said that while she found out later that Maggie had known about Tom's past, The rest of the family did not. She tells me, My family were very close with Tom for many years. We had absolutely no idea about his past until three days after his death. To us, he was family, a very caring and kind man with a twinkle in his eye and a wonderful sense of humour. It's taken me over a year to process the discovery of this shocking information and to be able to separate his tragic past from the man that I loved as a second father. I found it a little odd that he never spoke of his family over all the years that I knew him. But I thought that they must not have been close and never pressed the issue. One evening, my current husband and Tom were up late having drinks, and my husband pressed the question of family a little further. Tom told him that there was a tragic accident and that he didn't like to talk about it. 
Tom was very kind-hearted and had a fantastic sense of humour and a belly laugh that would make anyone smile. He loved listening to CBC Radio, was an avid reader, highly intelligent, and he loved to cook and was a huge sports fan. He also took great pride in his work at the BC Children's Hospital. He and his late wife lived a very quiet life in a cosy A-frame cabin on the Sunshine Coast for many years. Although Tom had many health problems after he lost my mother-in-law and moved to Kelowna, he had a lot more freedom to do things. Despite his past, he was not a monster, at least not the man I knew. Rest in peace, Papa Tom. Two decades after the murders, tragedy still dogged the family. Arthur Riggs, who had signed the death certificate for his sister Dorothy Kosberg and his two nieces and two nephews, killed himself in 1987 by jumping out of the 10th floor window of Vancouver General Hospital. While this podcast is about Thomas Kosberg and the murder of his parents and four siblings, it's got a similar feel to the Blackman murders in the family's Coquitlam home. In 1983, 22-year-old Bruce Blackman murdered his father, his mother Irene, his brother Rick, 16, sister Karen, 25, sister Roberta, 28, and Roberta's husband, John Davies, 39. All six were shot with the family's 22 and beaten with a hammer. Bruce's twin brother Barry and sister Kathy were not at home at the time and survived. Bruce had been suffering from delusions for several months before the murders. He told people he was possessed and he'd become obsessed with religion. He wore a headband that he called his crown of thorns. He was taking LSD regularly. Bruce's doctor had drawn up the paperwork needed to commit Bruce to Riverview, but for whatever reason, it hadn't happened. Earlier on the night of the murders, Bruce's sister Roberta had called their family doctor and begged him to commit her brother Bruce to an institution. She said he was armed with a hunting knife at the family home. The doctor told her to call police, but she told him the family would handle it and she drove to the house with her husband and her sister. A neighbour ended up calling 911 after watching Bruce shoot his brother-in-law on the front lawn and then beat his head in with a hammer. Bruce said he was saving his family from the end of the world. He was later diagnosed as having a one-time drug-induced psychosis. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity or not criminally responsible for his actions. He was committed to the Forensic Psychiatric Institute but given a conditional discharge in 1991, just eight years after the murders. He moved to Victoria to live with his cousin and got a job in a computer store. Four years later, a five-member BC review board decided that Bruce, then 35 years of age, posed no risk to society. Bruce, who changed his name, told the board that he didn't drink or take drugs. He lived with his cousin and got a lot of support from his twin brother Barry. When he wasn't working, he liked to boat, fish, water ski and camp. He planned to get his truck driver's licence. Bruce, the psychiatrist, said that he was confident that Bruce was not a schizophrenic and had never suffered from delusions. He said Bruce had not taken any medication since 1986. I asked Dr Curry 
if she thought there were similarities between Bruce Blackman and Thomas Kosberg's cases. Well, it's similar in the sense that you have this series of homicides. What isn't similar is that Mr. Blackman has what we see commonly occurring, which is as a result of drug use, he has a psychotic break. Now, psychotic breaks, the presentation of psychosis, can often look like a schizophrenic reaction. It can look like schizophrenia. It can look like schizoaffective disorder. And sometimes it isn't until later on when the drugs are removed from the situation, the treatment brings the individual back into their normal state of mind and Mm. you're able to make that decision. Oh, it was the drugs that triggered the psychiatric state. So that's what's different. Did the drugs account for his um, whole religious conversion and the hearing voices and all of that sort of thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, probably, yeah. I've seen that before. And one of the risks of drug use, in particular with young men, is that it can trigger these types of very serious mental religious delusions, very mm-hmm. common. And, uh, and then once you, you see that individual stabilized, these things can retreat and be gone. So in the case of Vince Lee, the guy that decapitated a fellow passenger on a Greyhound bus, he had delusions as well. Apparently God told him to do it, but he also got an absolute discharge after nine years. Is it something that's fairly common or are these just three really unusual cases? A, these sorts of crimes are very uncommon. B, it is possible for an individual to be treated, to respond well to treatment, to develop insight into their mental disorder and what happened at the time of the offense. And it's possible for them to be very, very rational about how to avoid that in the future to feel tremendous and deep remorse for the crimes committed. And after a decade of incarceration, essentially, under strict custody, and in the facilities that we have at this time in forensic psychiatry, which I would, I would suggest to you are world-class healthcare, I have no doubt in my mind that Mr. Lee was completely able to resume his life in the community in a safe manner. And because he had developed insight, he knew he had a serious mental disorder. He would be, he presented more as a true schizophrenic. And we have all this evidence because it's all entered into the record because there's a proper trial. Mr. Lee is absolutely 100% disconnected from reality. You know, Mr. Lee is so sick that he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't be able to engage in any kind of rational organized thought and he wouldn't and didn't for a fairly extensive period of time while he was being treated that's that's a absolutely 100 percent undeniably suitable case for the plea of ncrmd not criminally responsible on account of mental disorder so 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 different though from what you see in uh, thomas cosberg's case He's so organized. There's no evidence that he's uttering bizarre statements or trying to mutilate the bodies or engage in any bizarre or weird activities that would cause anybody to think that that he's severely disconnected from reality. He's not. In fact, he cleans himself up, he changes his clothes, he gets in a car and drives. I think Thomas is incredibly fortunate 
not to have been convicted on six counts of first degree murder and executed. And I have no doubt, had he been an American or a minority person, he would have been convicted and executed. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. If you'd like to learn more about the Cosberg case and other historic murder cases in Vancouver, visit the Vancouver Police Museum and Archives. Read case files and see real evidence from the Cosberg case, the infamous milkshake murder, and others that were investigated in the building's former forensic analyst lab and city morgue. Located at 240 East Cordova Street, the Vancouver Police Museum and Archives is an independent nonprofit organization and relies on visitors like you for support. Buy tickets online at vancouverpolicemuseum.ca.